I used to tell my Minnesota congregation back when I was in Marshall that the B stood for Baptist. But after this weekend, I'm going to claim Boston. <laughs> they came back from 4-1 to one in the ninth inning and won all four games against the Yankees. So I just had to get that from, from Michael. Um, I'm going to teach from the floor, and I'm going to encourage a little bit more interaction today. So those of you on the wings, including the Yankee fans there in the back, uh, could you move into these two center sections since we've lost the kids and encourage you to come here so we can be a little more intimate and hear each other, give a little feedback. As you get settled, we'll start with a few of the dad jokes again. So, let's see here. I've got the... Is this... I've got a, I'm not sure if I'm getting anything with you. I need to turn on. There. Okay. There we go. All right. I turned it off and I felt it buzz, so maybe that's a, all right. So here we go. We'll go the, with the dad jokes. Um, we're in Iowa. Uh, and I, if you haven't caught, one of the reasons, I, I didn't just pick a team out of the blue. I, I was a Navy brat. I was telling uh, Derek Chaplin this morning when we were talking. Uh, so my, my dad's from Maine, though. And if you wonder, I'll just clear up this, too. A lot of people come up, and they're trying to ask strategically and sensitively. Uh, I, but sometimes people just get out there and say, what are you? Um, it's like, I am from. <laughs> um, but my mother is a native Filipino. And uh, so dad was in the Navy. Uh, he's from Maine. And so they met in the Philippines, they got married, I came along, and so that's why I have, people have trouble nailing down the ethnicity. So that's, that's a story. But dad is from New England, and so I root for the Red Sox, I root for the Celtics, they, they had a good year. I root for the Patriots, um, I know nobody, when I, I, I was also, I graduated from faith, and so see, I rooted for the Patriots when they were bad, when they lost like 40-something uh, to two against the Bears back in the day with Refrigerator Perry and all that. Um, I remember those days, the red jerseys, the white helmets. I still like those uniforms better, actually. Um, but I was a, a member at Altoona Regular Baptist Church here in Iowa from 95 to 03, and I served as the associate pastor there. And so when we won that first Super Bowl, uh, and Kurt Warner, Iowa boy, was there, and they had just come off. Uh, the Rams had won the year before. And anybody know the Garwicks? The Garwicks, Na uh, Randy and Nancy Garwick were members there. So Jesse, uh, he was actually, I think, fifth or sixth grade at the time, their oldest son. And we were watching it after church. You know, we couldn't cancel church or for the Super Bowl. Um, but, but after church, we, we went down there, and we watched the second half, and we're in the youth room, and, and they're all excited, and they're all rubbing it, oh, Pastor Greg, they're going to lose. And, and, of course, Vinatieri kicks the field goal. They win as the clock expires, and I'm like the only guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jesse had just been rubbing it in my face the whole game. Yeah, Pastor Greg. I, uh, and so I was like, Jesse, 
oh, and he like, this fifth, fifth grade boy just shoves me into the door, and he's crying, and that just made it so much better. <laughs> so, but there you go. Um, I also remember the Cobras were members at Altoona, and a few years before that, the Patriots had lost to the Packers um, in the Super Bowl. And Mrs. Cobra came that Sunday night, and she wore her traditional, you know, Altoona's very traditional church, and so she had uh, her, her traditional Sunday dress and everything, but she had to show she opened her blouse, and there was a, Patri uh, a Packers jersey <laughs> underneath. <laughs> And I think, I think they managed to squeeze Dr. Cobra that day into a cheese head, too, <laughs> after church. But that, those were some good memories there. All right, so we're going to Dad Jokes. We're in Iowa, and that's where I was going with that. So, <laughs> and as much as I claim New England, that's where my roots are, um, between Iowa, Minnesota, and now we've moved to Illinois, I've actually been in the Midwest longer than I have anywhere else in my life. Just spent 10 years uh, in Marshall, Minnesota. We were in Iowa from 95 to 03, and now we're in Illinois. So I feel like if I'm not a Midwesterner, I at least know the language. I know we have to value farming, right? That, that's something we have to do. Uh, I've adopted. We, we, we have seven kids. Three of our kids are adopted and born and raised uh, in Minnesota for most of their life. So my son just loves John Deere, and so he, every time we see green and yellow, John Deere, we're excited, and we have a, a John Deere bird feeder in our, in our front yard, so I guess we're, we're connecting that way. So these, this, these jokes are on a farm theme, so I'm, I'm laughing with you, not at you. I just want you to understand that. <laughs> All right, so here we go with the first one. I want to go on record that I support farming. As a matter of fact, you could call me Protractor. Pro. <laughs> All right. All right. A man was driving down a quiet country lane when a rooster strayed out into the road. Whack. The rooster disappeared under the car in a cloud of feathers. Shaken, the man pulled over at the farmhouse and rang the doorbell. A farmer appeared. Somewhat nervous, the man said, I think I killed your rooster. Would you please allow me to replace him? The farmer says, Suit yourself. You can join the other chickens that are around the back. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of a Maine joke that we have back there, that Maine people, like a lot of rural people, most of the state is rural, we, we get pretty territorial about what constitutes a native Mainer. Uh, and there was a, uh, a woman who had died. And as far as everybody in town knew, um, she, she was somebody who had been there. She'd been in the woodwork. Um, but at the funeral, the, the pastor actually goes so far as to, to call her a native. And somebody from the crowd puts objection. She said, nope, nope. She was born in New Hampshire, uh, and, and she came over here. Her dad got a job, and she moved here when she was three years old. He's like, well, that seems... That seems like a pretty, and, and, and Fred, you know, her dad was from Maine, uh, from Maine and uh, so, so can't we kind of call her Maine if she's a native? And he says, well, if a cat has kittens in the oven, it doesn't make them biscuits. So, so there, I guess that, that, that was the rationale there. Um, all right, 
Here's the next one, another farmer joke. A young farmer and his girlfriend were out for a stroll in the fields when they came across a cow and a calf rubbing noses. Boy, said the farmer, that sure makes me want to do the same. Well, his girlfriend said, go ahead, it's your cow. <laughs> All right. Well, here, here's an old, an old tried and true one. Why did the scarecrow get a promotion? Well, he was outstanding in his field. Uh, <laughs> all right, this is, oh, there, there it goes. Now you get the, the, the full effect. I'm sure that that's even, that, that makes it so much better. <laughs> well, mercifully, here's your last one. Convicted hitman Jimmy Two-Shoes McClarty confessed that he once contra was contracted to take someone out in a rice field using only two small porcelain figures. Authorities believe that this may be the first known case of a knick-knack paddywhack. <laughs> so there we are. We're going to be talking, <laughs> mercifully so again, I'm sure, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, worship this week, as I introduced yesterday. We're going to talk this morning about the place of Scripture in corporate worship. And the Bible is important. The Bible is something that we understand. We, we talk about in churches like ours that we are word-centered churches. We grow up in Sunday school singing the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. And we learn that how do we know that Jesus loves us? For the Bible tells me so. We, we need to emphasize that. We need to make sure that we prioritize and we hold up the prominence of God's Word in our lives. But one of the ways that we sometimes fail to do that, perhaps like we should, is we don't really read the Bible as much as we wave the Bible. This becomes almost like a flag. It becomes a symbol. And in our corporate gatherings, we preach the Word, but we probably spend more time talking about the Bible than saturating ourselves in the Bible. Because, you know, if we're going to have public readings, everybody can read that. It's like when you go to the business meeting. You don't want them to read all this stuff. It's like, give me the forms. I can look at that on my own time. And half the time you never really do. It's just like, yeah, everybody approved the treasurer's report. Let's go. We don't want to look at all that stuff. And that might be fine for the treasurer's report. But we shouldn't approach the Bible that way. And I've, I've, I've found myself falling prey to that too. It's like, okay, we start the service at this time, and if we're not done by noon, you know, the, the best tables at, at Pizza Ranch at the buffet are gone, and <laughs> we gotta, we got to get out. And so what can we cut? And a lot of times it tends to be the scripture reading, or we abbreviate it, and we don't saturate ourselves in it. You know, those familiar passages, um, Jariah and I were talking uh, a few nights ago, you know, as we're getting acquainted and, and so we're discussing deep theology like superhero movies. <laughs> and so we haven't talked about this yet, but we, we, we apparently we both have a love of superheroes. We're both DC guys, Boo Marvel, um, which doesn't mean much to most of you, I can tell. Um, <laughs> my church secretary at Brown Street is like the world's biggest Spider-Man fan. And so you go into our church office and it's all... Spider-Man oriented and, and this kind of thing. Um, 
And in one of the Spider-Man movies, and I have a point, in the Spider-Man movie, <laughs> when Aunt May is, it, the, the walls are caving in, the supervillain's going to destroy, I forget which villain it is, but what does she do? She's panicking, and she's trying to find stability in the midst of all this chaos, and she begins to recite scripture. It's there. It's, in the, it's embedded in the popular culture. It's a familiar passage. And we kind of take for granted, we work under assumptions sometimes that, yeah, everybody knows that. But in our friends who go to more liturgical churches, how do they know it? It's because of the repetition. It's because they, they say these things over and over and over. And you say, yeah, and they don't really understand it. They don't know the significance. I'll grant you that. But in a churches that value the word, we often spend a lot less time making sure that people are familiar with it. I mean, we have Awana. We have Kids for Truth. We have memorization kinds of things. But it, it's all, we've relegated that to the kids. That's what they do. And we don't saturate ourselves in it constantly, refreshing, reminding. Um, so part of what I want to talk about here this morning is the prominence of public scripture reading. By the way, Jorah, what time am I supposed to be done? Just making sure. It's almost 10. 10.30, okay. I'm going I'm to try to make sure I squeeze in everything there. So part of what I want to talk about is going to be sermons and preaching. Because the word of... 1045, there we are. So we want to explain the word. We want to apply the word. But we need to also be familiar with the word. So there's different ways we can incorporate that. And again, one way is public scripture reading. So we're going to do that here right now. So I'm going to invite you to stand. The scripture is going to be on the screen behind me. We're going to do a responsive reading. So if you look on the screen, you can also, well, this is the ESV so if you don't have an ESV, you can look on the screen. If you do have an ESV, you can use it to follow along. We're reading from the 119th Psalm, and we'll read verses 57 through 64. Now you'll notice at the top it says Heth. That's one of the Hebrew letters. This is an acrostic, which shows us, among other things, that Hebrew children, Jewish children, as they were learning, they were given tools to try to connect it as from A to Z. There's something there that's able not just to give them the truth, but a way to help them retain it. It was meant to be memorized. It was meant to be familiar. Something to think about as we read this together. So I'll read the odd-numbered verses. Those are the italics. You'll read the even-numbered verses. And let's read together and hear the Word of God. The psalmist writes, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Entreat in favor with all my heart. Be gracious, Queen, according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. It's, there we go. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. 
The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. This is the word of God, inerrant, infallible, inspired, written by God, written for us that we might know what to believe, that we might know how to live, and that on its pages we might meet the living Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. We'll talk about more what I just said there in just a moment. But it's important, I think, for us when we gather to have those times like we just did to hear God's voice, to get the words that he wants us to know. We're going to talk here about a little bit about public reading. Why is it important to have scripture reading? Because first of all, as we said yesterday briefly, I think that what we need to remember, we need to understand is that God is speaking to us. This is his voice. It's not high pitch, low pitch, or anything like this, but he is giving us what he wants us to know. We need to increase its familiarity. We need to find ourselves saturating ourselves in it. Yes, we do need to take personal, private attention to it. We need to have it be, as the psalmist says, our meditation all the day long. His delight, Psalm 1 tells us, is in the law of the Lord, the one who is experiencing the blessing of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. But part of the way we're going to show that priority, we're going to give it the prominence, is by what we value as we gather together as the body. We also, as you notice there, I gave a little bit of a comment. I explained heth. I told about an acrostic. It was repetition. But we haven't really talked in any great detail about what some of the things that were going on. Like, why is he praising the Lord at midnight and, and things like this? There, there's application we could make. But in the end, when we have God's word, we should understand that it is meant to be understood. This is the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, which is one of the more ironic things because very few of us use the word perspicuity outside of a theological framework. Uh, but perspicuity means clarity. It means simplicity. It's, it, it's there to be soaked in. It ought to be something that... The, the average person can pick up and understand. Part of the reason why we have things like translation and strife that, that are going on in our modern churches today is because there's that, that war, that conflict between what we have been immersed in, or at least some of us, and the, de the desire to make sure that people don't have to read their Bible in one hand and a dictionary in the other. Um, one of the verses we're going to look up here in a few minutes uh, is from James chapter 1 and verse 21. In the ESV it says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted words which is able to save your souls. I memorize that, that we talk about the superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. Now, I know what that means, and probably a lot of you know what it means as well. And it is a little bit more fun to say superfluity of naughtiness. I, I'll give you that too. But children aren't going to grasp that. E even your, your average people in, in a society where, as a pastor, I'm running into people, adults, who don't read very much. They, they struggle. We want to make this plain. We want to make this accessible. When I ministered in Marshall, uh, we had the privilege for probably six out of those ten years to work with a refugee group from Burma. Uh, and 
we're sitting here. Pastor Dwight back there uh, was one who helped us with. Dwight and Sheila were working, uh, teaching ESL classes. And we had some great relationships. These are people who grew up speaking. Not only did they not speak English, they didn't even use the same letters. You know, it, it, it looks completely foreign to us. And I'm sure it was a struggle for them trying to come from that into something more complicated, much less trying to help them figure out the, the these and thous and superfluity of naughtiness and things like this. We wanted to make sure that God's word was accessible to them both in their own language and as they were learning English that they could start to comprehend so they could hear God for themselves. There are different conversations that we might be able to have about source text and different things. Not going to be what we're going to do here. We're not going to invite that discussion right now. But there is something to be said for making sure that people can understand the Word of God as they read it, as they are exposed to it without having to go through the filter. We just celebrated here recently the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And that was what that was about. That people didn't have to go to the clergy to have that it translated, quite literally, from the Latin, that they had to have it explained to them. That what changed Christianity, what changed civilization as we know it today, is because people were able to access the truth and read it for themselves. They were able to hear God. They were able to understand. And in the process, figure out that, hey, wait a minute, the way we do church doesn't match what this says. And that's what changed the world. Friends, this is a powerful book. That refugee group that I talked about, that we were working with, it was an interesting thing because when they came to our town, it wasn't because one of us went knocking on their doors and said, hey, you should come to our church. They came looking for a Baptist church. And do you know why? Because almost 200 years ago, a little uh, man from a little place in Massachusetts got the drive to take the gospel to the nations. He had heard about William Carey. His name was Adoniram Judson. And he wanted to go over with William Carey in India and evangelize the pagans over there. Well, he was also a congregationalist, and on the, the long boat ride, he read the Bible and became a Baptist, praise the Lord. <laughs> okay, and so he goes, and he takes uh, uh, some time to work with Carrie and figures out that there's too many differences and says, we've we got to figure out a different place, but I still want to bring the gospel to the nation. So he goes to Burma, and he labors there for 10 years with very little fruit to show, but he translates the word of God into the Burmese language. And God starts to work, and they lead a servant man to Christ who's working for them. And that man's name was Kothabu. He was of the tribe, the Karen tribe, that we ended up working with. And within 12 years, tw I think it was estimated that 12,000 people out of that tribe had come to know Christ because of the Word of God, because it was accessible, because they could hear God speak to them, and it was accessible, it was understandable. So, there are conversations to be had about what we're reading, yes, but we need to understand that there's something big at stake as far as how we value it, how we give it promise. It's meant 
to be soaked in. It's meant to be taken in. And so, with that said, there's value also, I'm going to say here, in the collective experience. That it's good for us to read it together like that. It's good for our kids to hear us say that we're going to stand. We're showing it respect. We're giving it some kind of significance here. This is something special, not something to be tucked away like with announcements or something like this that can be shortened. Announcements can be important. Announcements talk about in the, in the course of a church service the priority of family life together, the kind of things, the common experiences we share. But just as important as a potluck is or just as important as announcing the next activity for the college ages or something like this, isn't it just as important, at the very least, to be able to show that together we want to hear God speak through us? We want to hear God speak to us. There's something to be said there for that collective experience. Now, you might say, but that just feels so rigid and formal, and what you did there at the end, it's just like, it feels like, I remember when I started doing some of this in Marshall, I had one of the guys there struggling to know how to explain it. He says, it feels like we're Lutheran or something. <laughs> and I, I can also see that. There's more than one way to go about doing it. Maybe instead of doing this, maybe you have Andrew behind the, count, behind the, the keyboard and his flip-flops saying it or something. But <laughs> I don't know. But, but there's, there's ways that we can work it in um, between songs, scripture passages that connect with a theme that you're singing about or something. It doesn't have to be done a single way. There's more than one way to skin the cat. But there's a value in having that collective repetition. I mentioned yesterday when I was preaching that my kids know because they've heard it so often. I guess they must, Arby's must be a, a, a big sponsor of sports or something because my kids all know, even though they, we never eat at Arby's, they know that Arby's has the meats. It's been repeated. It's been drilled into their heads. There's something, again, to be said for that repetition, that drive, and the collective experience that we compound into, whether it's children, new converts, we're showing the value. There's also a value in its presentation. If all we ever do with Scripture in our church services is kind of read it as the the preface to what the really good stuff is going to be when Pastor Mike starts telling his stories or, or whoever happens to be preaching it, not just to pick on Pastor Mike. But if all we ever do is read the Scripture to be like an introduction to the good stuff, how much, how, how significant is that feeling? We have to give it a prominent place. Let it sit. Let it do, whether you make that formal pronouncement like I just did at the conclusion of what I said, to show the audience, to show the congregation that this is, this is something we better notice. This is something that we better give attention to. We can vary it in presentation, but also give some variety and delivery to sometimes make sure that they don't get, it doesn't get too monotonous, that people start to pay attention. It's even a way that I've found in, in my ministry over the last few years it's a way you can get different people involved. You can put different readers. Um, one of the things we started doing here since I came to Alton is with our Sunday night service, which we've made our prayer meeting, 
we're doing things every month or two. I've called it a concert of prayer where we diminish some of the other things and just focus more on singing on a common theme, on a theme related to prayer. Uh, and then we, we break down, I don't know if you've ever seen the little acrostic of acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And we have different people praying to those things, focusing on the person of God. Uh, and as maybe on one, one night we talk about his holiness. And so we, we consider some of the Psalms and scripture passages there. We sing on that theme. But then we direct thought to him in prayer. We, we focus on his person. We focus on how uh, the, the confession of our sin, that, that, as we talked about yesterday with holiness, how that, that shows us the things that we need to acknowledge corporately, how that shows us what we are ourselves guilty of. We like to focus a lot uh, as preachers sometimes on sins that everybody else is doing and not really giving much attention to the kind of things that we need to adjust. Um, but Scripture can do that. It can highlight some of the problems, like we might read about uh, in, a, in a few moments here when we turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. That will be the next passage we're in uh, here in just a moment. But we can also do like we just did here. We read responsively. We can read in unison. You can listen. There's different ways that we can vary the approach but show its significance. So what I want you to think through me with here, because I know we've got pastors, but we've got church members, what are some things that you've seen done in your church services, or maybe how you're already doing it, that give it prominence in your corporate gatherings? How, how have you seen that framed effectively in a way that you feel maybe connects well with you, it makes it increase significance to you, or you've seen your children respond to that in a different way? Scripture. Chuck. Yep. That gives you another smile. Right. It's part of the routine. And I think, but routine can be our enemy. We don't want vain repetition. But routine also has some benefits. You know, like for our family, apart from scripture reading, we've still found that eating the evening meal together, with all the other chaos of the day, the evening meal is that time where we all sit together. Not every meal is as pleasant as, as the other ones, you know, that we have variety too. But it gives us that point of intersection. There's, there's the routine. The Psalms tell us that that has benefit in our prayer life. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he will hear my voice. Routine doesn't have to be vain. Repetition can be beneficial. And standing, just like we as kids learn, we put our right hand over our heart and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. That can get empty. That can get meaningless. But if we pause... If we reflect, if we consider it, it has great significance. There's no reason why routine can't in our church services, too. Okay, so standing. What else do we have? Right there, Kevin. Yeah, we've done. We've incorporated a couple of those into our those concerts of prayer things that we've I've just talked about. Yeah, it, it the just the the difference in the cadence or the voices it it causes you to pay attention in a different way. Good. 
that that's I've done that a few times. We don't do that consistently. It's one of those things we vary, but that 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 can be very effective. Okay, good, Mike. That's another often overlooked thing, and it's sometimes challenging to implement that unless you're very intentional, like Mike just says, to, to have that memorization, something you work on together, but it's something that needs to be done. Your word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin. Okay, that, that's something we should do. Daniel. Routine can be our friend, but also can get you, there's, there's a fine line between routine and rut, which I found out when I came to Brown Street and I changed the, the order of service for apparently the first time in 30 years. Uh, <laughs> that, that was, but we're six months into it. I don't hear as many complaints now, so we're, we're doing okay. Uh, right, that's, and that's, that's exactly how I, that's how I roll, but apparently that's not how my predecessors for the last three decades roll. <laughs> But anyways, go ahead. Uh, along that similar line, uh, I'm sorry. It, yes. Right. The scriptural call to worship, if you didn't catch that. that I think that's good. It, it, I was glad when they said, let us come to the house of the Lord. Or, or some, some things like they can be just simple chunks. I, I've been in a couple other church services um, where they'll do... Uh, scriptural call to repentance, a scriptural assurance of pardon after prayers and things like that. That can be very effective too, just incorporating those elements. And sometimes we think of that as music, but we can do that with scripture too. And uh, uh, the whole point is that you should be drawing what you're saying explicitly from the text and expounding on that. Right. And so Jariah is saying, which we're going to touch on here a minute when we preach, but the value of exegetical, expositional preaching. I know that's where our new national representative is trying to drive uh, our churches of the association to think more carefully and prioritize that. Uh, and Jariah mentioned, too, that if you're doing your job as a preacher, preaching sequentially through chapters and verses, one of the things you're doing is not just giving good exposure and exposition, but you're teaching the congregation how to read their Bibles, um, and that they should be going through it in, in, and under, reading it with understanding, making sure that they read the different sections, familiarizing them with the genres. And by the way, I'm just going to challenge you guys too as preachers to think that there's different ways to approach that. You can go at the micro level and break down the individual sentences and develop them and, and make sure that you leave no stone unturned. 
But there's also such a thing as exegetical, expositional preaching uh, at the macro level. Um, one of the most rewarding times that I had uh, in Marshall was actually preaching a sermon series where I did one message on every book of the Bible as a survey, as a whole. And I remember still this, this new convert. Uh, he was like, man, that's great. I, I didn't even know there were some of those little books in the middle that you're going through. And he was all excited too because, hey, we started reading our Bible and there's like stories in here. <laughs> and he was just thrilled that it wasn't all genealogies, apparently. But, uh, um, but sometimes if we don't do something like one book, there, how many times are people going to get through Ezekiel? Or they're going to find Hezekiah, or find out that there is no Hezekiah if you haven't caught on to that by now. Um, but they're, 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 there's going to be obscure sections that they're not going to latch onto. And, you know, friends, what more relevant book of the Bible could we find sometimes in, in a moment of crisis than the book of Habakkuk that talks about how God is there in the midst of, of calamity? and chaos, and yet he's the master of that. There, there's so many good things that we will lose in obscurity if we don't give attention to the full word of God. Any other good ideas that you were really hoping to share with the group before we move on? Chad? Right. If you didn't hear Chad, he said they make sure that they vary from Old and New Testament in the service to make sure that we don't just emphasize one over the other. Uh, I've tried to do that. Like if I'm my, my normal sermon series is on the New Testament to try to make sure that the the scripture passage that we're reading from is Old Testament or contrasting so that we at least have some exposure uh, of different exposure in our services. Um, I've also tried to be mindful if like I'm doing uh, morning and evening services to like if we're preaching through Revelation in the morning we're going through the Psalms at night or, or, or something and switching to make sure that we expose everybody to the whole counsel of God. All right, well this is the formal statement that I had if any of you want ever, you don't necessarily have to copy it down, but if any of you want it you can contact me and I can get it. it I know it feels rigid to some. And it's not for everybody. But I think there is something to be said to make people understand, remind them every once in a while. I don't do this every single week, but I do this most weeks when we do our scripture reading. Just to try to emphasize that this is, this is hey, we're back to the future. This is heavy. Remember, that's what Marty McFly used to say, it's heavy. I felt like I should be wearing my orange vest. <laughs> um, but the, it, you're trying to put that there is weight to this. This is something that is, is that is important. There are phrases that we have like in the wedding vows, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, or with liberty and justice for all. They're just bigger than what we might say in conversation. And impressing this on a congregation has some value just to say this is a, an important book. It's something that we should give careful thought to. I know in some of our traditions we recoil against that rigidity, that formality, and maybe that's something we need to be mindful that we don't go too far down that road. But there is some value, again, in the repetition, in the routine, in the weight 
of what we're doing. There's something to be said uh, for invoking and building a sense of reverence and respect for God as we hear his voice through his word that I at least want to mention for your consideration here this morning. But we, if we never explain it, if all we ever did is read it, there are things that are going to be missed too. It, it is good for us, like when we were going through the 119th Psalm, to talk about the acrostic, to talk about that. Those are things that are there, but they need a little digging. They need a little explanation at times because you're not just going to catch that as you read. You want somebody who's taken the time to familiarize himself, not just with the scriptural context, but with the historical context, who's given some time and energy and thought into, okay, this is what it meant for the original audience. And like that, here is what we ought to do here today in 2018 because of what we have understood. And that's where preaching comes in. When we proclaim and read the Word of God, we are also trying to make it relate trying to make it apply. So we spend time on explanation, and we spend time on application. Uh, as it's been said, a good expositional sermon makes the point of the text the point of the sermon. There are different ways to go about doing that, by the way, too. Jariah, and we've, we've talked about, Jariah raised it, that it's good, and most of us probably take the approach week to week from going sequentially through a book, chapter and verse. That has great benefit. That's the way that most of us do it because that's how John MacArthur does it or, <laughs> or something like that, right? But there is more than one way. All of us, uh, if you're young preachers, right now the current uh, idol because he looks good on a t-shirt is, is Charles Spurgeon, right? You have, you have the Spurgeon t-shirts and, and all this kind of thing. And, and he's held up as the prince of preachers uh, one of the greatest uh, of in the English language. But it's interesting when you start to break it down and you look at how he preached, he was not a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse guy. Week-to-week, week, he would be all over the Bible. Now, was he expositional? Was he showing God's truth? You read his messages, and I say, absolutely he is. He is anchored to the text. But... He's not going through it sequentially. He's a master, especially for his generation, of clarifying and applying, bringing the truths in such a way that people understand what the Bible is saying and what they're supposed to do with it, how their lives are supposed to change. And we need to remember that as well. So I know there's a lot of pastors here. Make the Bible accessible. Make it so it's not just, oh, I know what that means, but now I know what God wants me to do with it. If we don't bring the weight of change, we're not going to really see and help our people know what God wants them to do as a result. That's something that we need to offer. We're giving direction. We're giving instruction. Hebrews tells us, that we are going to give account for their souls. That means we bear some responsibility, not just to make sure they intellectually get it, but they know what to do with it. So we are relating the Word of God to them. But I'm talking to the pastors there, but I know that a lot of you aren't. So what do we do with that sermon time? Because sometimes 
when we listen to preaching, it feels more like we're spectators. This is something that other people are doing. And Pastor, you're here talking about how we worship together. That's something they do, the guys do up on the platform. So how am I supposed to participate with that? Well, this is where we're going with the last slide. We're talking now about preparing for preaching. This is not in your notes. This is extra. But this is going to be the most uh, involvement that you can give. Because you do need to give some thought. You need to give some intentionality to be ready to receive this word of God. So, I'm going to ask you to turn, as I've already mentioned, to 1 Peter chapter 4. And as we go there, before we go into the text of Scripture, the first thing that we can do to get ready for preaching, I've, I, I'm of a generation where I grew up under alliterative pre preaching, so that's every letter starting the same. So, I did that for you here today. Some people like that stuff. So, we're starting with the letter P, physical. You're getting ready to go to church on Sunday morning. What do you do Saturday night? That's where the preparation starts. If you want to be ready to receive the Word of God, probably the best thing to do is not to stay out till 1230 at a concert. If you really want to connect, if it's going to be a priority, now that's not to say that there aren't going to be some exceptions or you have family over or there's different activities, but prepare. Get the rest you need. Make sure that you, you can do things to relieve the stress, whether it's sometimes maybe making plans the night before for the meal the next day or, or something. But don't put it off so you're doing it uh, until 3 o'clock in the morning. Make sure that you've given enough time to allow yourself to rest, to allow your mind to be ready. Um, in our family, we have seven kids. Um, my wife has a system now in place where when we brought our last three kids into our family through adoption, they all came in at once. So we had four older kids, three younger kids, so she implemented a buddy system. And Saturdays, what would happen in our family is older kid gets younger kid, older kid goes into the younger kid's room, lays out the outfit, we know the strategy, so when we get up in the morning, you go through the process, and it's not chaotic. It's not everybody fighting in the car, screaming, well, maybe sometimes, but at least <laughs> less chance of opportunity to do that. And it helps you prepare. It helps you to engage and to focus a little bit better. It may not seem like much of a spiritual emphasis, but friends, the intentionality is going to help us be a little bit better, ready to receive, ready to soak it in. There's different things that might be uh, applied in your context, but give it some thought. What do you do Saturday to get to Sunday? What time are you getting to bed? What time uh, are, 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 do you have breakfast ready to go in the morning? And, and you t make sure you get something so that you have a little bit of energy, so you're not getting too drowsy and you're able to engage yourself a little bit better. There, there's some benefit to that. Not just in the content, but being ready to soak it in. Now, I'm going to say the next thing on the letter P, presumption, is that we start off with this idea that this is the voice of God. This is what he's trying to say to us. And so we have to be ready to take it in. We know that we don't have it all figured out. God does know better, so I'm going to listen to him. 
He knows better than me. First Peter chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I really want to go down to verse 11, but there's some benefit as we hear God's voice to putting it in the context and reminding us of some of the contrasts to where we ultimately want to go. So we're going to read this whole passage, follow along as I read again, reading from the English Standard Version. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keeping, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves through the, by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, the phrase I want us to focus on as far as preaching is for the preacher, he needs to remember that he is speaking the very oracles, the very words and ideas and concept. This is the voice of God. That should, that should be a very heavy burden. That should strike you, preacher, when you get behind that pulpit, that I'm not here to give my opinions. My authority, my responsibility is to make sure that people know what God wants them to know. I am speaking with his authority, and you need to make sure that you take that seriously, that you make sure that you are not imposing your ideas, that you are studying that. You know what the pastor said so you can explain it, so you can apply it, so you can communicate that. But you know what, friends? As you're listening, you too ought to be remembering that if you're sitting under the right kind of guy, that what I'm hearing is not just his opinion. What I, what, he's not preaching at you because he's mad at you or, or, or he, he wants to micromanage your life. This is God saying, this is what I want from you. And come in with that kind of a presumption. What does God want me to do? Not sometimes what we think, what does God want? Oh yeah, that, I'm glad that other guy's here. Or why aren't they here? Because they really need to hear this. What does God have in this for me? Work under that presumption instead of, okay, preacher, what you got for me now? Um, that kind of presumption is going to be helpful at more of a receptive attitude. Understanding in the full context of what we just read that God is in the process of changing it. We've left the debauchery. We've left that world behind us, or we ought to be, because these kind of things in the contrast 
That is the world that most of us live in. That is the language we're saturated in. Those are the people that we come in to work with on Monday morning who are still kind of bleary-eyed and hungover and different things like this. And God set us free from that. But the way he's going to keep maintaining us on that course is by correcting us, by working through his word, both in the clarity of how we develop that in a closeness and intimacy in a regular time with him, but also making sure that we have that explained, that we have that understood, that congregationally, collectively, each one of us together as being one of the pixels on the screen. And when one of the pixels doesn't work, your eyes always go to that little spot, not to the rest of it. You know the flaw. You know the imperfection. We don't want to be that flaw and imperfection. We want to add to the collective clarity that people can see Jesus Christ. And so, James 1.21, we receive with meekness the implanted word. We're ready. We're receptive. We're working under that presumption that this is God speaking to me. Next letter, P, is persistence. What I want to emphasize there, folks, is we need to make that part of our regular habit. Most of us are in churches where the pastor is speaking sequentially. So he's connecting a thought that you're going to get the benefit one week to the next week, but you're going to get added benefit by hearing it in context, hearing themes explained, reinforced, repeated, knowing the argument of the book, knowing what God wants you to do with it, making sure in the same time that you're establishing things like habits, Many of you were raised in the same kind of environment that I was, that you're in church every time the doors are open. Now, maybe some of us pastors and churches need to help churches remember that there might be some benefit to changing sometimes when the doors are open. There, there are different things that we might need to do to adjust to make sure that we're connecting with a culture instead of making sure the culture always has to conform to us. But it is a balance. We, there is some benefit, friends, to having that regularity of time, regularity of, of familiarity with faces, and persistence in knowing together that this is how we live. This is what God wants us to do. This is how God wants us to know it. To hear, like in a collective prayer time, it, I, Pastor, it's so hard to make my two-year-old sit still. We've got a six-year-old that can outdo your two-year-old by ten. <laughs> and we do it. I, I'm not unsympathetic. But there's benefit to that little wiggly six-year-old hearing Grandpa Jones over here pray. And to see that Grandpa Jones, who's retired from Boeing, still loves God, makes that a priority in his life. It's not just a professional clergy that thinks about spiritual things. That's something that I can do. That's something I need to do. That's something we gain with persistence in living the Christian life in community because Christianity is not meant to be lived in isolation. We're meant to live that with other believers as part of a larger group. There's going to have to be participation, that we are taking these truths that we are learning together and doing something with them. That's the application that we've been talking about. But there's also participation in the sense that when the man up here is talking, that you're holding him accountable. Acts 17, 11, we know about the Bereans. And why are the Bereans commended? Because they searched the scriptures and confirmed that whether the things that Paul, the apostle, 
the one who's speaking, the one who were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the New Testament is equated with the apostles. Paul's that guy. And they're still making sure, okay, is what he says matching up? They're making confirmation. They're making sure they're grounded and understood. Don't work under the presumption to the point that you're not holding them accountable, that you're not making sure that what they say up here matches with what's here. We need that kind of accountability. And friends, if you're part of a congregation, that's what congregationalism is all about, is making sure that we are anchored to the text, that the, the guy up here is saying indeed what God is saying and not just offering you what he thinks you ought to do. But when you confirm that, ultimately, we need to be ready to do the change and put it into practice. And James 1.22 tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We take these marching instructions, we put it into practice. And that's what we're going to do when we gather together and make the word of God prominent, make it the focus of our gatherings. All right, that's all we have this morning. But before we close, we've got four minutes left according to the clock. Any thing that was prompted or observations that you want to make or maybe a point that you'd heard wrong and you want to clarify here as we draw our time together to a close this morning. We can get yourselves ready because tomorrow we get to talk about music. <laughs> and, I, and as much as that can sometimes be a time of walking on eggshells, I'm really going to endeavor. We're not going to, as much, and as much as I, talk, I joked about the, the, the lasso guy, we're not going to dog on anybody. That's not going to be our point. And honestly, we're not going to push traditional, contemporary, or whatever. We're going to talk about why do we sing? What is the teaching benefit? And how can we do that more effectively to the glory of God uh, in our churches? And so we're going to examine the scripture together and see how that's going to be uh, something that all of us need to be going about doing, even if we sometimes do it a little bit differently. Um, so.